harvest is surely come. A dry summer didn't come before. Natural disasters. All right. This is an organic farm sandwich. Comes to you the first and third Thursday of each month. And this is the third Thursday, December December 16th. And uh, my name is Richard Hill here with Chris Ferriero. We're trying to... Oh, we got yeah, we got to get Chris on the line there. Yeah. Hello, right. Chris. How hey, Richard. You? Good to see you. Good to hear you. Yeah, we're still... Um, a lot of muscle memory do we have to catch up with on this, on this new board and this new studio. And when that happens, look out. We're all going to be super de- highly developed muscle men and women. So um, I want to also welcome Steve Mono to the line. Steve, are you with us? Yes, I'm here. Nice to be with you. Oh, fantastic. So glad we uh, figured this one out. Thanks for calling, Steve. Yeah, got you on there. And, um, yeah, Steve Mono is the farm manager at Massaro Farm. He is uh, currently our uh, lead man at the top of the show, the Granite Farm Stand each each, uh, each show. And so um, he's going to be sort of giving us his report from the farm and also tidbits and advice through uh, the winter as we – you know, stare it down, stare down the barrel of that uh, three-month uh, period. We can actually, we're approaching the solstice. So those people who celebrate that, not because they love the winter, but because they love the turnaround when the days start getting longer again. You don't have long to go for that. So lucky us. Um, Steve, how are you? And um, what's the good word from Masaro Farm? Oh, I'm doing well, thanks. And, you know, we're taking advantage of it being 55, 56 degrees here and sunny. You know, we, we don't expect conditions like this in uh, in December. But um, because the, the fall has been so warm, you know, we've kept growing outside. We, uh, we're harvesting kale and salad mix this morning. We've got some more carrots to pull out in the field. We've got some salad turnips to pull out in the field still. You know, last week we were still harvesting fennel and cabbage. You know, and a lot of times, uh, you know, in previous years, we would have pulled all of that already and brought it in. But we've been just taking it week by week, um, you know, watching the weather stay warm. And, you know, we've got a little cold front coming, maybe some rain and snow over the weekend and temperatures dropping. But, um, you know, this allows us to keep going outside as much as we can. And, and that, that might be a little daunting for the future. You know, we don't we don't hope for continued uh, warm in the 
uh, in this at this time of year. But um, you know, we'll take advantage of it with uh, continuing to do what we can out in the fields. And I imagine those people, you know, in their gardens as well, you might still have things growing out there that you didn't expect. So I'd say, you know, take those gifts while you can uh, and continue to get ready for winter. You know, doing a little little winter prep project just now, fixing up some of the fence line, um, you know, things that are harder to do when it's cold uh, or snowing or, or frozen. So uh, all the little projects you can get done around the farm and garden, you know, take advantage of these moments while we still have them because you never know when we're going to be uh, covered in, in snow and, and frozen for a period, um, you know, in the weeks and months ahead. But, uh, you know, as you mentioned, with the the solstice coming, you know, we'll start to see uh, ourselves gaining light instead of losing light, which which I'll be grateful for. And and if you're planting things, you know, if you've thought about putting something in the ground, uh, you know, at this time of year, I always like to wait until after the solstice. Um, you know, if I had something I might want to plant in, in late November, you know, after, after you're done with garlic, I, I sort of see that as the end or, or any of your bulbs. But some people like to get um, seeds in the ground, like, like carrots, you know, or, or lettuce, and then let it very slowly come up uh, uh, in, in, this, in, in the spring. And I like to wait until after, um, after the solstice, so it's gaining light the whole time instead of losing daylight and then gaining it again. So, uh, you know, if there's a warm window in a couple weeks, uh, and you've still got space in the garden to put something down, that, that's a time, you know, carrots particularly are something I like to do, um, you know, while, while there's time in the garden and, and let that um, slowly, slowly grow it and harvest them in early spring. So, you know, there's a number of things you might still be doing around, and, and you yeah, know, we're taking advantage of the sunshine today. That's kind of a revelation to me. I, did, I didn't realize you could, you could plant seeds in the dead of winter. And uh, so it's, it's the root vegetable, so obviously uh, that you're... you're mostly going to be doing if yeah and you'd want to protect them of course you know i I wouldn't say it's it's um you know it's it's surefire it's going to work out for you but you can you know if you've got some bare space in the garden um you know you can sow those seeds and they'll they'll grow slow and you know you might not get the same kind of germination rate you would normally get um uh, but uh you know i've had success particularly with carrots uh and then some other hardy things like like kale or mustard greens or arugula uh, even spinach. I mean, typically we try to get those things started in um, in late summer and early fall that we'll harvest throughout the winter. They kind of hibernate, and that's what we've got in our high tunnels here right now. These are unheated greenhouses, and they're packed full of greens and some carrots, and those are all established in, in sort of late, late summer, early fall. Um, but as we harvest those out, we can replace them um, uh, with greens that'll grow, you know, they'll be on a slower trajectory. So if we typically expect, you know, a lettuce or a spinach to come uh, ready to harvest in 50 to 60 days, well, we've got to add on time for that um, is to harvest, uh, you know, if we're selling it in the in sort of dead of winter, it's going to take much longer because it's got less daylight. So even if it were warmer, we'd still, you know, it's the, the seeds are responding to the day length. And, and so they're going to go a bit slower at this time of year, but, but they will need to be protected. So if you're in a garden setting, you know, you might cover it with a, with a frost blanket or a row cover, maybe even some leaves and something like the carrot will eventually come through. Uh, and in our context here at the farm, you know, we're growing it in our unheated tunnel. So, you know, it's getting warm, uh, you know, on a sunny day, but on a cold day, it's staying cold in there. And then it just slowly germinates and slowly comes comes ready. And then, uh, you know, come uh, mid-spring, we've already got an established crop instead of just putting a brand new seed in the ground. So, so it helps us stagger harvest and, and able to harvest, you know, all 12 months of the year. Hey, uh, Steve, I just wanted to ask you, um, 
about garlic because uh, I'm usually a, a late comer when it comes to garlic. I wait till I get all my, uh, I clean up my garden. Um, so would you recommend waiting actually till January for that? I think you could still do it. You know, I think the, the, the question at this moment is, will the ground be frozen in another couple of weeks? Uh, so if you still, the garlic, I think will respond just fine. Uh, if you put it in now while you've got time, you- uh, so I, w- I wouldn't necessarily wait for the garlic, but, um, you know, other things, like I said, I'm going to wait on, um, some of the greens that will replenish where we've already harvested in our tunnels and I'll wait another couple of weeks on our carrots. Do you happen to know what root planting days there are this month? The root planting days, you know, if you're looking at the um, uh, the calendar, um, uh, you know, I, I haven't I haven't opened that up in a while. The um, okay. uh, the biodynamic calendar, but uh, we do have a full moon coming in the next in the next couple of days, I believe. So, um, you right. know, if, you're, if you're if you're looking at that uh, for guidance, um, you know, the moon should be full. I think over the weekend here. Okay, so uh, so any time during the full moon, in essence. Yeah, absolutely. And if your garlic, like, like you know, if you're thinking about your garlic at this moment, you know, it's a beautiful day like today. I, I always say do it when you can, too. You know, you might try to time it with the full moon or, you know, just as it's coming full or just after. Um, but, you know, when you've got a day like today, if you can, it's always nicer to be working when it's, when it's sunny and 50 degrees than when it's, you know, <laughs> rainy and 40 degrees. Yeah. Okay, so thank- do yourself a favor there, you know, and, right. and get out there while you can. Right. Okay, thank you. That's a great question, Chris. And, you know, I just want to mention that we do have a tradition here of welcoming phone calls with questions or comments on the show. And we do have about 20 minutes here before uh, our special guest, Dave Chapman, joins us from Longwind Farm in Thetford, Vermont. He's going to be talking about these uh, amazing symposia that are going to be happening in January and in February, uh, which are... Um, truly um, going to be uh, in, fantastically interesting and in-depth. Uh, one of them, let me see if they have the titles of both of me. Um, yeah, the, the first one, it would be on January 20th, and it's a you know online a symposium that you can join. Um, I think there is a paywall there, but um, it's a two-hour thing with, I think, over 50 speakers uh, of great renown and wisdom, and that one is called Milk and Money, and it is uh, explores the impact of the um, massive influx of industrial-scale dairy into the organic sector. So we're going to be uh, speaking with Dave Chapman uh, starting at about 12.30. Until then, uh, the phones are here, and um, with a little luck, we'll be able to Field your phone calls if you have any questions for uh, Steve, who is a has encyclopedic knowledge <laughs> that he's prepared to share with you. Um, he's already shared some this morning. So, so that just so people know the phone number, if you don't know by now, two zero three 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 six nine seven five six. Yes, and um, do we know why um, Steve's call did not immediately go through? I think I was wasn't pressing the right buttons. Okay. Your fault. Yeah, my fault. Yeah. Okay. That will be corrected in due course, or he will be <laughs> spanked publicly. All right. Um, so my name is Richard Hill. I'm here with Chris Ferrio. This is the Organic Farm Stand. Once again, we come to you the first and third Thursday of each month, and um, we're still picking up the pieces after our 
uh, calamitous loss of Guy Beardsley, um, who passed away about uh, a month ago. And uh, but um, we have decided to forge on, and with your uh, encouragement, we will continue to do that. So. Um, yeah, l- let us know you're out there listening. Give us a call to say hello. It's holiday season. Whatever your uh, proclivities are in terms of uh, celebrating that, it is in- indeed there is a certain festive air that even I, cynical old, crotchety, uh, and um, not particularly uh, healthy me, uh, does experience at <laughs> this time of year. Part, I, I got to admit it, it does have to do with the turnaround that happens on the winter solstice. I had this friend, uh, Ruben Abreu, who actually mentored me to become a, a radio host here at PKN. Um, and uh, he used to have this huge winter solstice party. Now, Ruben is Puerto Rican, and um, I was always curious. I said, Ruben, why do you always get so excited? <laughs> In the dead of winter, you know, when the day's at its shortest, you know, what, why are you having this big celebration, this big party? He says, I'm celebrating the fact that it's all going to change, you know, by, <laughs> by tomorrow. We're, winter is receding now. So he was celebrating the end of winter, basically. And uh, so that there is that sort of paradox that we, uh, we experience each year with winter, which is kind of, in, in a way, magical and delightful. Uh, so, yeah, so S- S- Steve, let's um, find out a little bit el- more about what you are going to be doing in these dark days uh, as we um, approach the solstice and beyond. Sure, yeah, so this is a great time to be um, looking through the seed catalogs and, and making plans for your garden for next year. Um, you know, and that's something that I'll be getting into shortly. I've already, you know, been thinking about it throughout the year as each crop goes in and out and each harvest comes in. You know, we think about uh, what went well, what didn't go well, what varieties are excited about. Uh, and then, you know, over the last few weeks, I've started to see the catalogs come in the mail, um, you know, and they're introducing new varieties. And, uh, you know, we've got my high mowing ca- uh, catalog. I've got my Johnny's catalog, oh, no, Fedco, uh, Seed Savers Exchange. There's a number that come in and it's just a really fun time to to open those up uh, read read descriptions and and start planning for next year uh, so that's a big task over the next you know couple months uh, we'll be playing with what with what we're going to do out you know no major changes necessarily in the crops that we grow but there's always uh, you know an opportunity to try a new variety um, maybe try a new vegetable maybe try a new flower uh, and see what's out there and um, good time to talk with talk with other farmers of what went well uh, for them and um, you know over the next few months this is also a great time to learn to read uh, and to go to conferences um, you know we had we'll have Dave Chapman on later but you know a few years ago we had uh, Dave Chapman as the keynote at the Connecticut NOFA winter conference uh, I think that was back in 2018 and you know there'll be a number of conferences uh, that'll help you know connect with people and expand our knowledge as well. So this year, you know, a lot of conferences are going to be virtual this year because of, of COVID. So uh, the Connecticut NOFA conference is no different. We'll be doing a couple weeks of um, 
uh, virtual virtual workshops uh, in, in mid-February. So this is a good time to get yourself registered for conferences, you know, on whatever topic you want to be learning about. I think, you, you know, you look through the, the, the NOFA um, website, you'll see the various workshops. You look at the, the Real Organic Project and their symposium and all the amazing speakers. So so this is the time really to get into that, to, to reflect on the year gone by and, and plan for the, for the year ahead. Um, you know, at whatever scale you are at. Uh, so I, I'm always excited for this time. It's a, it's a good time to reconnect with other farmers as well. And even if we can't get together as much as we'd like in person, it, it's nice to be able to, you know, meet over the phone or talk over the radio or connect on Zoom or connect at these conferences virtually as well. Because, you know, we really need to be sharing with each other uh, our experiences and, and help each other, you know, do better next year uh, with whatever we're doing. We believe we have a phone caller, so let's check in and see if we can get them on the line. Caller, are you with us? Uh, yes, I am. Uh, my name is Ernie. I'm calling from Bridgeport. Um, you just mentioned um, seed catalogs, and, and my question to Chris was going to be, do you have any tips on where to purchase seeds, and what's the difference between what they can well, – I've heard the term hybrid seeds compared to other seeds. What's the best – way to store them and what's the shelf life of seeds uh, i'll hang up and listen to the radio thank you thank you thanks for calling so actually he directed it to me but i believe steve you'd have the better <laughs> answer yeah well so there's a bunch there um you know so in terms of buying seeds you know I, I, you can get lots of seeds at, at a local garden store you know i typically will order direct from the seed companies and the seed companies themselves are are you know raising seeds you know, raising crops and, and saving their seeds, and then also contracting with other farmers who are going to grow seeds for them. You know, and they'll put that in the catalog. So, but what I tend to do is uh, look through the catalogs. You know, decide what I'm going to plant and, and make the orders directly. You know, from the from those seed companies, you know, as opposed to going to a store and buying seeds. So it's very easy. All these companies, you know, have wonderful websites. It makes the ordering uh, really easy, really simple and straightforward. Um, so I typically am doing it online as opposed to um, going somewhere to purchase the seeds. And then this question about the hybrid seeds, you know, so the, you can look at it as a sort of there's a, a set of seeds that are hybrids and a set of seeds that are open pollinated. Um, so an, an open pollinated seed um, you're going to get the, the the your pollinators out there, whether it's your bees, your butterflies, your various insects, are going from plant to plant, and they're they're making they're they're pollinating the plants, and that's creating a, a new uh, you know the the seed for the next generation. And typically, you're getting you know um, the same thing that that you got the year before um, with that plant. You're, the 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 sort of children of that plant are going to be or be you know equally representative of that plant in the next year when you plant it. Whereas a hybrid seed, it's going to come from two distinct parents. So if you're going to create, um, you know, we grew a, a tomato this year called the Cherokee Carbon. Cherokee Carbon tomato, the parents of that Cherokee Carbon are the Cherokee Purple tomato and the Carbon tomato. So open pollinated, we wouldn't be able to get that parentage because we need to have that the, those seeds sort of cross, the, 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 those, those uh, two tomatoes cross together. So we, we need to deliberately do that to create this hybrid and create the Cherokee carbon tomato. It's a wonderful tomato from two great parents, but that's not going to happen uh, with the, the pollinators in your, in your garden. Um, so we need to create that, um, you know, by hand. Um, so those, those hybrids are... are 
selecting for specific traits, and it's it, you know it, that that's that's not sort of genetic engineering. It's just it's what we've done. We people have done you know over millennia uh, selecting traits for the the color, the flavor, the durability, um, uh, and then and that Cherokee carbon you know, is not going to create necessarily the next Cherokee carbon. In order to create Cherokee carbon, we need to keep breeding the Cherokee and carbon together, um, the Cherokee purple and carbon tomato. So if that makes sense, the next generation from the Cherokee carbon might not look exactly like it. And that's why we keep, if we like that tomato, we keep ordering it from the seed company um, to, to get that exact tomato that we want instead of, um, you know, some next generation uh, of it, which might not have the same exact characteristics. So bottom line, go online and find uh, seed distributors. If you're interested in organic seeds, Steve, do you have any uh, specific recommendations for uh, sources for them? I know Fedco is one I've heard mentioned a lot. Um, yep, Fedco is wonderful um, and high mowing organic seeds. All of their seeds are, are certified organic from high mowing and they're based in Vermont. Um, so those, you know, high mowing is my go-to for, you know, it's the majority of seeds we, we purchase here. Um, uh, but uh, Fedco as well, Johnny's uh, selected seeds, uh, both Fedco and, and Johnny's are based in Maine. Um, you know, there's a number uh, of really wonderful seed companies, a number of smaller seed companies as well. Um, you know, and there are New England-based ones. There are, you know, um, companies that are out of the Northwest as well that, that, that um you know, make seeds. Uh, so territorial is one that I like. The seed seed savers exchange is another one um, that I like a lot. Uh, True love seeds is another great one in in the area. So um, yeah, you, you'll if you're looking for specific varieties, I think you can search them online. You know, if there's a specific specific type that you're looking for, make that search. Find out which companies have it. But I, I like looking through through high mowing and Johnny's and Fedco particularly. Is there any? Uh regional or geographical admonition here in terms of where you get your seeds if you're planting in a specific you know geographical region uh if would would you not want to go uh, to a west coast source for seeds you know i think um it's always worth looking at seeing where um where the seeds are grown, if you can, if you can find out that information, and, and sometimes that's easy to find, and sometimes not as much. Um, and usually the companies will try to tell you in their description if it's widely adapted, if it's preferred in in the farther north, or if it's mm -hmm. if it's great in the south. So, um, but also we find plenty of seeds that are very widely adapted. So, you know, years ago I was growing on the central coast of California. And I've grown in, in Massachusetts as well, and I've used many of the same varieties. Um, and I've also found that, that some varieties, you know, here work, work well that, that didn't work well on the West Coast. So um, generally, I think, you know, for, for a home scale, it's not going to matter as much. When, when you get into, you know, yield data and such, you, you know, if you're on a productive operation, you, you might want to have something that's um, more tuned for your exact location, uh, you know, as best you can. And then if you're saving seeds at home, that, that's the best way. Way to do it you know you you've got something that thrived in your home or on your farm and if you're able to save that seed and grow it again um you know i i think that's that's a great way to go something that's really endemic to your to your property um and that that has succeeded is likely to succeed again what is um what is your uh progress or or, or position at this point in terms of csa membership at the farm i i, I know that uh it, became difficult, actually, to get memberships with a lot of uh, small farms because of 
the uh, pandemic and people really wanting to lock in their food sources for the, uh, the summer season. Um, have you begun to offer memberships? Are you offering memberships this year? And uh, what's the status? Uh, so we are we are offering our, our CSA um, subscriptions. It's open now for next year. So our what we offer is a is a basic twenty week subscription June to October. We also offer a ten week option, and that's available. You can do ten weeks in a row, ten weeks every other week. However, however you want to do it during our twenty week season, um, and we we make that available. Um, at the end of every, each year, so when we get to October, we open the subscriptions for the next for the next year, and we've got you know a number sold already. But but we don't typically sell out until the spring. I think once people get out of winter, um, you know, and get that first stretch of, of sunshine and warmth, and start thinking about the garden, we tend to get a, a flood of um, of sales at that time. Of course, I'd love to have it all wrapped up already, uh, you know, and everyone resubscribed, but. Um, you know, the pandemic did shift things a bit. We we grew from just over 200 CSA subscriptions, we, 220, 225, to now just over 300. Um, you know, and we stayed at that level this year, uh, and we had to cut it off there. We couldn't offer much more than that. So, um, you know, and our hope is to be at that level again next year. Um, and the CSA, I think people were really happy to, to be with us, um, you know, particularly in 2020 when going shopping and such was was uncertain for a lot of people um you know prior to there being vaccines out there and, and not knowing as much about the virus um you know people were really happy to be able to come to the farm and have a local secure food source you know and i, I hope that interest stays the 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 uh, local food source is important uh, under any conditions uh, so so hopefully the, that interest stays uh you know in the years ahead as we move through the pandemic but um you know i, I think a lot of uh, farms that offer csas you know max the themselves out and, and there was a lot of interest the last couple of years so uh, I'm sorry that it took a pandemic to, to, to bring that interest up but uh, you know glad to be here for for the community and, and really appreciate that the community came out to us for those people who are hearing CSA and they don't really know what it means community supported agriculture what what does that entail and uh, what is the kind of protocol and and, and just the mechanisms that, that go on with the CSA idea of the CSA is that uh, the community is bought into the farm. They're, you're making an investment, uh, you know, ahead of the season, a, a payment to the farm, um, uh, allowing the farm to, you know, uh, uh, cover the costs of buying the seeds, buying, you know, whatever they need to amend the soil, to pay staff, to get all, all the materials ready and get everything planted, uh, you know, and, and cover those costs in the beginning of the season. For And the return uh, to the customer is the, is the harvest throughout the season. And, and there's lots of different ways that that has grown over the years, but the, the basic idea is that the community is invested in the farm to make sure that the, the farm, uh, you know, has the funds it needs, um, you know, to make it through the year. And, and what this does is, is it, 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 it relieves, you know, the the need for a farm, hopefully, to you know to take out a loan uh, from the bank, you know, to have to consider selling off farmland. So, you know, especially here in Connecticut, we look at you know how valuable farmland land is, and, and that farmland can easily be developed. You know, so by having a community invested in the farm, it means you know the, the farm has security. 
you know, in that it's got funds and community backing, and the community has security that there's going to be a farm there. So it's a it's a it's a sort of a shared um, enterprise. You know, there's some risk and reward for everybody. So you know, every year's harvest is a little bit different. You know, we grow a diversity of crops so that uh, you know we know that you know in a given year, whatever the conditions are, something if if it's a real hot year, that's probably not going to be great for some of our crops. If it's a real wet year, that might not be great, but it'll be, you will have other crops that will thrive. So, you know, we have a a variety of things we're growing. We've got diversity on the farm to uh, mitigate against any potential, uh, you know, environmental hazards or loss or pests, you know, and the community is sharing in that risk and reward. And, you know, at the end of the year, you know, the farm has the funds it needs and, and the community is, is served with, uh, you know, the harvest that the, the farm brings in. Uh, but it's really about keeping keeping farms in communities. I think that's that's the sort of central tenet there and the, the community is invested in, in that farm, uh, you know, and, and the farm has security within the community. It's a great model and um, it has been proven over decades now. And uh, we're so glad that, uh, you know, it's thriving here in Connecticut and especially, you know, with your that boost from <laughs> really, a, a well, I guess, 30 percent boost in, in uh, membership is just surprising and, and, and impressive. Um, I think this uh, whole movement and we're, we're going to be speaking about with Dave Chapman of, of uh, you know, s- small and local farms fighting back against these giant agricultural concerns that are basically trying to, um, I guess you could say, um, smother the organic market with their um, dubiously produced organic produce um, is, uh, you know, it's it's just very encouraging to hear that this movement is thriving here locally. Well, speaking of Dave Chapman, um, I'm quite sure we have him on the line now. Dave, are you with us? I am here, Richard. That's so great to have you. We now have some time for you. We've been uh, sort of flirting with you for uh, several shows uh, with all kinds of strange, um, you know, exigencies coming and going. So we've we finally got a stretch of time where we can really talk and dig into the projects you're working on. I just want to just say a word about Dave. He's the uh, exe- proprietor or manager of Longwind Farm in Thetford, Vermont. He's the executive director of the Real Organic Project. We're going to get into what that means. The implication there is that there's a real organic and a not-so-real organic. He's the founding member of Vermont Organic Farmers, and he's been active in the movement to keep the soil inorganic. And those are in caps, so that is an actual movement, keep the soil inorganic. He's proud to be a current member of the Policy Committee of the Organic Farmers Association, and he served on the USDA Hydroponic Task Force. We'll find out more a little bit about that later. I, p- I presume that does not mean you are championing <laughs> hydroponics. <laughs> but no, they, they, they almost limited it only to hydroponic champions, but there was such an outcry that they let a few of us soil types on. <laughs> soil still is uh, on the ground. Okay, and so... Um, we are uh, so delighted to have you here, Dave. Um, oh, thank you, Richard. We're going to spend some time, I uh, hope a good deal of time, talking about the symposia, I, I guess I'm hoping that's plural of symposiums, uh, <laughs> that are coming up in February, uh, January and February. They sound so impressive. And by the way, they are. I've watched 
the 2021 um, recordings that you have on a really excellent website, um, which yeah. I think is, what is it, uh, just uh, therealorganicproject.org? Is that, is that's that, right. That's the that's the website. That's right. Real Organic will get you there. Yeah, and um, so the, so the twenty twenty one symposium uh, tapes are there with um, amazing amazing uh, just oodles of knowledge and and expertise contributed by uh, so many tens of people from around the country and I think internationally too, um, but. Let's talk about the the when did these symposiums start? Like when is that was twenty twenty one the first one, and is twenty what's what's going to happen in twenty twenty two? Yeah, you bet. Um, you know the 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 first the first symposium was at Dartmouth College in two thousand nineteen, and it really spun off of the um, annual meeting of the standards board of the Real Organic Project. And we got 15 people on the standards board, and, and you know it's very much based on the National Organic Standards Board, except ours is better, <laughs> a lot better actually. But you know we have a number of former members from the National Organic Standards Board serving on it, um, but ours is very farmer centric, and the the board members are chosen by a group of whatever 45 uh, people on our boards. We have three boards. And, you know, so they're really highly qualified people who understand what organic farming is. If you've ever been to the USDA Standards Board, there will be some excellent people, but there will be some people who are industry hacks, and there will be people who honestly really kind of wandered into the wrong room and don't know what they're doing there and don't understand the issues. So that was... That was our standards board, and because we had these 15 great people coming from all over the country, we said, well, let's put together a symposium. And we had a one-day thing, and we had um, a few farmers come in who were not part of our standards board. And, uh, you know, it was just an amazing day. We were in an auditorium at Dartmouth College, and um, I, I, I... it was transformational for people who attended. They, they could only fit about 200 people in the room, but you know, it was it was really good. So that was the uh, 2019 one, and then yeah, and then you you kept it going. Uh, it's developing. Well, the, the, we we had one lined up two days at Dartmouth for 2020, and that was in April. Uh-huh. And it got canceled three weeks before that. Um, right. Like everything got canceled. So, um, and that was, you know, a disappointment because we really uh, had uh, another amazing group of people and we had spaced it out over two days and Paul Hawken was coming to uh, give the keynote at at the, the huge auditorium at Dartmouth, but none of that happened. And so we we recovered and we said, well, the only kind of gathering we can have for now is, is virtual. And so we didn't know what we were doing, but we didn't really know what we were doing creating an in-person symposium either. So we we interviewed over 70 people and from, from all over the world. And we had two from Australia and Vandana Shiva from India and some people from Europe and and then a whole lot of Americans and I 
think we had a yeah. Of course, we had Jam Fortier, so we had a Canadian in there too. Right. So um, that and that one. Uh, what was the focus of the 2021 symposium? That was that was um, yes. It was in 2021 because it was in January of this year. So we <laughs> we 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 just barely got it into this year. Uh, we had we had five sessions. Each session was a couple of hours, hour and a half, and they were on a Sunday afternoon, uh, consecutive weeks. And the first one was, "What is the Real Organic Project?" and um, and basically, you know, why why does it exist? And um, and then the second one was um, s- s- soil health. And what does that mean? What is soil health, and and you know, what does it look like? How how do you think about it? And the third one was was agriculture and climate, and you know we had Bill McKibben and Al Gore, kind of leading leading that. But we had a number of great farmers talking about that too. Um, and you know, uh, Mr. Gore's perspective is is actually really fascinating. It was a, a, a really interesting to interview him. And he focuses on how climate change is affecting agriculture, and um, and then we had speakers like um, Walter Yenna focusing on how agriculture can affect climate change. So looking at this as a two-way street. Hmm. And the fourth session was about um, was about nutrition and soil health, how they're connected. Um, again, great speakers, Joan, Joan Gussow from Columbia and, a, you know, a former, she's an author and a former member of the National Organic Standards Board, a great organic champion, and uh, Ambie Clay and David Montgomery. Um, and then the last one was where do we go from here? And what's the future of the organic movement look like? Well, and and so, the whole thing was trying to look at what does it look like if we don't do anything, hmm. and what does it look like if we do? What does it look like if we, if we, you know, create the change that we all believe in? Yeah. Well, it's just uh, it's so many interesting questions raised there in that last one. Um, and we want we want answers to all of them, but we also want to talk about 2022. And so, why don't we do that now? Actually, lay out the uh, the agenda for 2022, and um, and then we can come back and and maybe answer some of the questions raised by that previous one because I think they're all questions that our listeners are curious about uh, and and need a little more in depth knowledge about yeah so yeah so what's 2022 has two sessions and uh five was enough (laughs) for the first year (laughs) two is better i can't tell you how much work it was um and it's still a lot of work we interviewed uh, over 40 people for for 2022 um exciting people senator john tester and shelly pingree michael pollan Dan Barber and Elliot Coleman, and just, I mean, it's endless. And the reason that it's endless is because we're speaking for the organic movement. And uh, we're not just speaking for an organization called the Real Organic Project. 
And the organic movement is actually very big. It's a huge world movement. It's, um, it, it, it's a little bit of trouble. And that's because it's being confused with the organic brand in America. And the organic brand is defined by the USDA. And the USDA has never been a part of the organic movement. So, you know, we have this fork in the road. And the truth is that um, the people we're contending with have just vastly more money and power than we have, which is how it always was. It's just that now they, um, the wolves are wearing sheep's clothing. So, you know, we, we have to deal with that. And it's confusing. It's, it's, you know, what greenwashing is all about. I learned a lot about greenwashing this year. It, it was really kind of invented um, by the oil industry to deal with climate change. And the oil industry were really among the very first. There was a relatively small group of scientists, and it was the oil industry who understood that climate change was real and that it was caused by human activity. And But they saw that it was going to cost them a great deal of money to really, if we really dealt with it, and so they, they, they actually had, you know, this is kind of a history that you can read about, but they, they hired a couple of brilliant marketing people, and they learned something in the early days, because in the early days when Ralph Nader and um, Silent Spring, Rachel Carson, came up, the, the oil industry made the mistake of attacking them, and actually worked with Ralph Nader, and they, they made him be seen as a kind of a kook, you know, as a lefty wacko. But it didn't work with Rachel Carson, um, and they tried all the normal slurs, and, you know, they said, well, she's not really a scientist, and, you know, we think she might be a lesbian, and, <laughs> you know, she's kind of nuts, and, you know, they, they, they did all that, but it didn't work, and partly it didn't work because um, she died of cancer very soon after, and and people really revered her. So uh, it, it backfired on them, and... When they came around the second time, they said, let's not fight them, let's join them. And it was a brilliant strategy. And so instead of saying, this isn't true, you know, these are a bunch of crazy people, they said, this is serious, and we're really worried about it, and we want to sit down at the table and work together to try and find a way to deal with this. And then they came up with a bunch of voluntary things that the oil industry would do to mitigate um, the damage caused by burning fossil fuels. And it, it worked beautifully. So I think that the rest of the food industry learned that's a good strategy. You know? So they're not, they're not fighting organic anymore. They're joining organic. They're just, you know, as I say, if you sit down at the table with Godzilla, Godzilla's going to have an awful lot of say about what's being served. It, it is just how it is. So we, you know, when we deal with these big multinational corporations, it's it's going to be a problem. Well, tell us a little bit more about that uh, that that mismatch between the real organic farmers and movement and the industry that is uh, really trying to shape and transform and distort that movement basically for its own bottom line. Well, you know, we, we've got to remember, Richard, that 
um, most of the certified organic farmers in America, th- those are real organic farms. So um, that part's great. It's working, and um, certainly in New England, it's working very well. I know for for years, I thought, well, I was wrong about the USDA, you know, taking over the definition of organic. This is working very well, and the farms that I see are all very legitimate, and uh, organic sales are growing, and and I thought it was a success until I started getting involved in a more national conversation. And I discovered these huge CAFOs were pouring milk into the market and transforming it and driving the farms that we all believe in out of business. And the same was happening with hydroponics, which is the issue that I first saw, uh, not because there were any hydroponic operations around here, but just because I I sell into the wholesale market and I saw a lot of... A lot of um, hydroponic tomatoes getting sold as organic, which was impossible. We agreed on that in 2010. So, and then I learned about the grain fraud. That was the third. So there are these three, um, three-legged stools that, that we keep tripping over. These are not minor things. These are, um, there's a lot of money involved, certainly, certainly over a billion dollars. Hey, um, Dave, I just wanted to ask you, um, just for, yeah. I know what a CAFO is, but you want to just describe what a CAFO is for our listeners? Absolutely. So it's um, it's a government acronym, C-A-F-O, and it stands for Concentrated Animal Feeding Operation. So, um, and it, the government uses it to define farms in which the animals are basically confined, Um and most of the feed is brought to them and it's grown elsewhere. And the opposite of that would be a farm in which most of the feed comes from animals going out and eating it on pasture. And um, CAFOs are the norm by far and away in American agriculture for dairy at this point and for beef and, and for chickens, poultry for sure. And um, they're now becoming the norm in organic, in certified organic. And I don't mean that most organic dairy farmers are CAFOs, and certainly they're not doing this this practice of confinement. But the majority of milk being sold under the certified organic brand is coming from CAFOs, and probably three-quarters of the eggs and, and poultry meat uh, for chickens is coming from so-called organic CAFOs. So this is a a huge failure of the National Organic Program. And we all know it. We all agree about it, that this is not right. Um, we've lobbied and lobbied and lobbied to get this reformed. I had a meeting this spring with Tom Vilsack, Secretary of Agriculture, and once again, he promised they were going to fix all this stuff. But they've been promising that. He, he's in his ninth year as Secretary of Agriculture. Yeah. And honestly, most of the bad problems happened in his first eight years. So what would be the fix, actually, in terms of this, this CAFO issue, these confined animal feeding operations, and also these gigantic dairy operations, which, um, as you point out, um, are flooding 
the market with CAFO produced dairy products in in the sort of or, or let's say there this tidal wave of milk and dairy products produced that way is is heading for the small farmers, the small dairy farmers, the local dairy farmers who are in fact uh, free range feeding operations. Yeah, yeah, it's it's very tough out there. Um, that's what our first session in the symposium is about. It's called Milk and Money. And um, I, I see it as a, a, a sort of a genuine tragedy in that you've got millions of people who are trying to buy the milk and the meat and the eggs from these farms that are being pushed out of business because they can't get paid enough to stay in business. And how does that work? Right? How did that happen? If you've got millions of people who want something and you've got thousands of farmers who really want to produce it and know how to produce it and are producing it, and and they're going out of business because they can't get sh- you know shelf space. So it's this is not a simple equation, but it's an important thing for us to understand. It's not going to be easy to change. It's much easier to change vegetables than it is to change uh the livestock part of organic, because vegetables are often and fairly easily done as direct sale. So you can start a CSA. I think that's what you all were talking about just before I got on. Lots of people have CSAs. You can sell at a farmer's market. You can start a roadside stand. You can sell to a local co-op. And maybe even you can sell to a Whole Foods or a Wegmans, right? It's not, it's not impossible. It's getting to be impossible to sell to them if you're a local blueberry producer because, you know, Driscoll's Monopoly has locked, frozen that out. But for most of the others, it's still possible. But if you're a milk producer, you really need to have a high skill set and ample funding to set up your own bottling place and distribution and marketing. And most family farms don't have the skill set to do all that and be good farmers. It's its just too difficult and it's too expensive. Um, to, to do vegetables, it's fairly cheap to get in. To do fruit, it's fairly cheap to get in. But to do dairy, it's not cheap to get in it at all, even to just milk and meet the, the safety regulations and all that. But on top of that, to have to package it, bottle it, uh, make yogurt out of it, and then just sell it somehow to stores and it's got to be refrigerated and all that and then to distribute it um it it takes a a pretty uh staggering skill set this is a, seems like a a perfect spot for the government support and to 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 try to you know to support this local and small and local farming dairy farming process and and yet the government is Really, doing just the opposite, working to uh, to to uh, facilitate and expedite these uh, gigantic dairy pro- operations. Dave Chapman, I just want to mention by we're down to our last few minutes with you. So, where do we want to focus uh, those minutes? Um, Dave Chapman, one more time, the executive director of the Real Organic Project, and he's one of the prime organizers behind these wonderful symposium that are coming up in January. 
in February. Let's, let's just give the dates for those. The January 30th is, uh, is the first one from 3 to 5 p.m., and uh, the second one is, I guess, a week later, uh, February 6th from 3 to 5 p.m., and go online and register. Uh, I did yesterday, and i um, very proud to say I um, contributed to the, to the uh, operation with my uh, membership uh, for those symposium. And um, so, Dave, uh, last words on um, the project and uh, where, where you're going from here. Yeah. Um, well, I don't think all is lost yet, but... Uh, I, you people ask me, you know, am I optimistic? And I say, no, I'm not optimistic, but I, I, I am hopeful. I think there's a great deal that we can do if we do it together. And um, you all are working on that. You've got this great radio show. You're getting the word out. We're doing the same thing. Many, many people are. You know, we're not alone. And that's one of the reasons that I feel like what I do is is a pleasure because I get to do it with great people and we're working towards something that we all believe in. So we can do it. We can change and maybe we can't change America yet, but we can certainly change our little part of America wherever we are, um, make different choices, support the kind of farming we want, support the kind of organizations that we know are working on that change. Yeah. And, um, it seems that, um, the, um, the, the the microcosm or or the or, or the kind of model that you're creating is um, you know has I I we would hope would be uh, the the template that would uh, would bring people you know on, on a larger scale into uh, into the process. So um, one more time, thanks so much, Dave. He's been on the organic farm stand this this. Uh, this week, and uh, we'll, we'll we'll have him back. We're going to obviously be mining so much from his uh, symposiums. So, stay tuned. It's WPKN. This has been the Organic Farm Stand. My name is Richard Hill here with Chris Ferrio. This is the Gaia-Gram, environmental headlines from around a planet in crisis. Desperate search and rescue efforts continued Sunday morning as the extent of damage from a catastrophic series of tornadoes that ripped through Kentucky and other states became clear. According to NBC News, at least 29 people died after devastating twisters destroyed a candle factory in Kentucky, battered a nursing home in Arkansas, leveled an Amazon distribution center in Illinois, and wrecked havoc in Tennessee and Missouri. That figure is expected to rise as cleanup efforts continue. These tornadoes are being categorized as some of the largest to occur in recent memory. In the wake of deadly storms that ravaged parts of the South and the Midwest this weekend, scientists had a warning. While the exact link between climate change and tornadoes remains uncertain, higher temperatures could add fuel to these violent disasters. NPR is reporting that across the U.S.